we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church. Awesome. As they were singing that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, I don't know how many of you are aware, but that's a, a song that was written by Martin Luther. And um, Halloween happens to be what? Reformation Day, right? And, uh, and so, although people were trick-or-treating, doing all those kinds of things, it's a call for the church to remember what happened and transpired in the life of Martin Luther and as he ignited a wave across Europe to rethink what it means to be the church, what it mean, or rethink what it means to be a follower of Christ. But this is what was pretty incredible. Those words that Martin Luther penned were incredibly dear to him. He, he was a monk. He had sequestered himself away under the service of God uh, to read the Word of God and to pray, to seek righteousness and peace, but he never found it until later on. Even though he was a monk and read the Word of God every day and was silent and, and in prayer, most of Martin Luther's life early on was mostly about fear. He was terrified that he hadn't done enough good stuff in order to be okay with God. He lived in fear. Every night when he went to bed, he was fearful. Man, if I didn't wake up, I'm not going to be with God because of the sin that I just committed or I'm just not good enough until he read through Romans again and he read the verses, the righteous shall live by what? Faith, and it changed his life. And so when he wrote those words, a mighty fortress is our God, Martin Luther just awakened this, unto this great revelation that it wasn't his righteousness, but it was putting his faith in whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. And what a relief that he had that it wasn't up to him, but it was up to what Christ had already done. For him, if he would only put his faith in Jesus, it revolutionized Martin Luther's life, and the rest, the rest is history. That happens to be where we're going today. From the beginning of Philippians, um, Paul has an aim to draw this Philippian church into the gravitational pull of the sun. It's why he says things like. To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's why he says, I want you to have the same mind as Jesus, right? Who didn't hold on to his rights as God. Um, it's, why he, it's why he said, rejoice in the Lord always. From the very beginning, from the outset of this small little letter, this letter of joy, Paul says, I want your life. I want you to be caught up in the gravitational pull of the righteous Son of God, Jesus. Because there's no other life where you can find that kind of joy and that kind of freedom and that kind of liberty and that kind of peace and that kind of hope than in Jesus. That's his heart and his aim. He turns a corner this morning in Philippians chapter 3 which is to give strength to his argument this whole time, all these encouraging words. But chapter 3 begins with a major significant warning. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Help us to listen to your word well and to love your word and to learn how to, to apply it to our life and to walk in your son Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, verse 1, he says, goodness, I want you to know Jesus the way I know Jesus. I want you to continue to walk in Jesus. I want your faith to be in Jesus. I want you to be caught up in the gravitational pull of the Son and all who he is. And it is good for me to remind you of these things, right? Let's go ahead and stand together and we'll read those verses for ourselves. Out loud with one another. Beginning in verse 1, we're just going to read the first three verses together. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. You may be seated. So he transitions to this warning, and this is a very significant warning. This isn't the only place we see this in the letters of Paul. In fact, he dedicates a whole letter to the the church in Galatia to this very issue. And in chapter 1 of Galatians, he even says things like this. Those evildoers, those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, if they teach you these kind of things, let them be accursed, is what he'll say. Paul issues this significant warning. And he says, beware, keep an eye out, watch out for people who would teach the gospel in a certain way. In fact, who would twist or add to the gospel. He calls them dogs. He calls them dogs. And of course, um, some of you might know this, but in this culture, Jewish culture and likely Greek culture, dogs weren't normally pets. Uh, They were feral. They just ran around wherever they wanted, scavenging for food. We kind of get an idea of the perspective of dogs in um, Psalm 59. Listen to this. This is verses 14 and 15. My enemies come out at night snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food but go to sleep unsatisfied, as if they haven't gotten their fill. They're never full. And so Paul says, there are a kind of people that I want you to watch out for. They never go away. They're always yipping at your, your heels. They're always snarling and barking and pointing out all of your faults, and they never get their fill. They never get the feel. They're always around looking to accuse you. And then he says, I, they're evildoers. And they're evildoers for one primary reason, because they seek to lure away the people of God, to put them on a different track. And then he says this, they are mutilators of the flesh. Now, in the New Living Translation, it says, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now, in the original manuscript, that word circumcised is not in verse 2. It just says mutilators of the flesh. Now, Paul does that for one primary reason. He doesn't include the word circumcision in verse 2 because he understands the historical value of circumcision. 
He understands the historical value of circumcision. But what he is doing is that he's describing these dogs or evildoers more akin to the pagans who would cut themselves in order to get God's attention. You remember when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and they did that really cool, I don't know if it was cool or not, but this contest, you build your altar, I'll build my altar. You call out to your gods, I'll call out to my God, and we'll see who brings the fire down to light the altar. So what do the pagans, those prophets of Baal, do to get God's attention? Well, the the Scripture says... In 1 Kings, that what do they do? They cut themselves, mutilators of the flesh, as if to say, God, look at me, look at me. Well, that's how Paul is describing these evildoers, these dogs who, who are mutilators of the flesh because they see circumcision as a way to get God's attention to find his approval. In much the same way the pagans would do. They had a wrong view of circumcision all together. So he calls them mutilators of the flesh. They had put their confidence in the flesh to find approval with God. And these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh would seek to add to the gospel and tell the churches across the land who were mostly made up of Gentile believers, you have to do something in addition to having faith in Jesus. Primarily, you have to take on the law that was handed down to Moses. You must be circumcised. And only then, only then, will you get God's attention and find his approval. If you do that, in addition to loving and putting your faith in Jesus. Paul would have none of it. Paul would have none of it. Beware, watch out for people like that. Church, there is a kind of religion that masquerades as faith but trades in fear and pride. Not just then, but today. There is a type of Christianity that masquerades as faith but trades in fear and pride. Fear in that You don't feel ever quite good enough. You don't muster. You're always looking over your shoulder. You think that your place and position with God is determined by your latest sin. And you're just hoping that some way that you just have enough, that you've accrued enough that it would be okay with God. And and so you live your life with fear, just wondering if, if what I've done is actually good enough or what I'm doing is actually good enough. Fear or pride. Goodness. When Jesus hung out and talked with the Pharisees and even Paul too, they had this laundry list of good works. The way they looked, the robes they wear, the words they used, the the laws that they obeyed. And they walked around with this great sense of self-righteousness that, wow, look at me. God must really approve of me. In fact, God probably thinks, God, if if I just had more people like them, There is a kind of religion that masquerades as faith but peddles in fear and pride. And that's what Paul is warning against. Don't do that. Now, uh, this, I don't, most of you can't see this image. It's a a black and white picture 
um, a, few, a few days after D-Day. This is actually Operation Market Garden where um, uh, Allied soldiers um, parachuted in by the thousands into the Netherlands or Holland. Um, but not unlike D-Day, I don't know if any of you have seen movies or pictures of what happened in D-Day when they stormed the beaches of Normandy and they, thousands of, of men came upon shore and other thousands parachuted o- on the shore uh, and beyond the enemy lines. And if you've seen those images or those, those moments in those movies, it's the scariest thing I've ever seen on the screen, right? They, they're literally pushed out of these planes while flak and explosions are going everywhere. You have no idea if you're ever going to make it to the ground. Many of them did not. But can you imagine the kind of fear that those men experienced the moment that they had to step off of that plane and even before then? not knowing if they were going to make it. Maybe by pure chance, I'll survive. And even then, there's a kind of a religion that peddles in that kind of fear. Gosh, you may or may not make it, depending upon what you do. Are you doing this? Paul says, stay away from that. Stay away from that. In fact, he'll say you weren't made for that. You weren't made to live in that kind of fear. You weren't made to live with that kind of puffed up self-righteousness. You were made to delight, to find redemption and freedom and joy in Jesus. That's the kind of life you were made to live for. So don't, don't live in fear and pride. Watch out for those people that would try to convince you that you have to add something to your life in order to find approval in God. Somehow accrue your own righteousness in order to be okay with God. He says, don't live that way. You weren't made to live that way, and you can't live that way because it's just a life of fear or pride, and both lead to destruction. In verse 3, of chapter 3 Paul writes this for we who are worshiped for we who worship by the spirit of God he's talking about identity right for we and he's talking about gentiles and jews in this little church in philippi but we we who worship by the spirit of God that our identity through Jesus established by the spirit of God as a deposit in us we worship by the spirit not based upon what we've done but by the spirit listen to what he says about circumcision for we who worship by the spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised we rely on what Christ has done for us we put no confidence in human effort this is not the first time that we see this kind of idea in the New Testament. Jesus began teaching this truth long before Paul put pen to paper. There's a conversation in John chapter 8 which rattled the Pharisees and the Judeans who were overhearing and interacting with Jesus. And they were on the cusp of trying to understand who Jesus is. Some of them liked him, some of them them didn't. Um, Many of them were troubled uh, by Jesus and the way he taught the word of God. But he starts telling them that, you know, your father is not Abraham. Now, this is huge, right? For the Pharisee, their, their identity and spiritual heritage is tied to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
their spiritual identity and heritage is tied to physical circumcision. And Jesus is starting to talk to them and say, I'm not so sure Abraham's your father. He goes one step further. Just a few verses later, he says, you want to know who your father is? Your father is the devil. Even then, Jesus was trying to tell the people of God that your spiritual security is not wrapped up who your grandfather is or your great-grandfather is. Your spiritual identity and security and righteousness is not tied to the deeds that you have done. Your father is the devil, he would say. And that's exactly what Paul is alluding to here. He says, we are the circumcision, even though most of you in this church have never been circumcised. But your hearts have been circumcised. You are declared as sons and daughters of God, not because of the laws that you've obeyed or the things that you've done or the righteousness that you've accrued for yourself or who your grandfather is or the buildings that you walk into or how many Bible studies you attend. No, he's saying, listen, you are the circumcision because you are in Jesus. And your identity is secure in Christ. You worship in the Spirit of God who is a deposit, declaring that we are sons or daughters. Paul would say, beware of those who would tie your spiritual identity to anything else other than Jesus. Who tell you, you have to do more, be more. When Christ is enough. Verses 3 through 6. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ has done for us, not what we can do. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. So Paul is going to strengthen his, his argument by sharing his own testimony. Right? He's saying, listen... We put our confidence in Jesus. We don't put our confidence in the flesh and the things that we can do, the things we can muster up for ourselves. Um, but listen, if anyone could pull it off, it would have been me. It would have been me. Um, Paul had every reason to boast in who he was, his lineage, his legacy, or his, or his uh, heritage. If anyone could say, look at me, it was Paul. And that's what he's saying here. If anyone could have done it, more than anyone, it's me. And what does he list? He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old, the exact time when a Jewish boy was to be circumcised. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there is ever one. If anyone is the truest of Jews, I am. I've got all the signs, I've got all the papers, I've got all the documents. And he goes on. He says, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous, in fact, that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Wow. So Paul says, listen, if, if, if you want to know my story, 
I'm a, a Jew of Jews. I've done everything that I was supposed to do from the very beginning. In fact, I am completely obedient to the law. I did everything they told me to do. If anyone has a reason to boast, I have a reason to boast. In the eyes of the Jewish leaders, before he came to Jesus, Paul had it all together, didn't he? Paul had it all together. But folks, this is not what Paul meant by when he said earlier, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is not what he meant. Of course, we already talked about that. Paul didn't mean when he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that in order for you to be saved, you have to have this kind of resume. That's not what he meant at all. You are not more or less righteous because of how you live or what you drink or don't drink, of the places that you go or how you vote. The things that we do is not what makes us righteous. And that's what Paul is saying. And Paul says about his own life, He says, I don't want to go to a life where I had to live like that, always in fear or in pride. So what does he do? Beginning in verse 7, he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counted, counting it all as garbage so that I may gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. I'm not going to go back there. I'm not going back there. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Jesus. So how does Paul describe his own resume? He describes it in a variety of terms. He describes them as loss. He describes them as worthless. He describes them as garbage. The word is, in the Greek is actually refuse. It's the same kind of word they would use for what dogs and other animals would leave on the ground. What, what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying? He's saying, do you want to know? my life, all the, the laws that I obeyed and all the signs that were evident in my life to be a Pharisee and a Jew of the, of the Jews, uh, to have all the right resume, you know how much righteousness that accrues to? Nothing. Nothing. My righteous life before Jesus amasses to trash and garbage. It's worthless. It's worthless compared to the righteousness in Christ. Of course, here's a famous passage, Isaiah 64, 6. It says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. That's how righteous, our righteousness was described in the Old Testament. And that's how Paul is describing it right now. 
that even the best that we have to offer to God is trash, not worthy of holding on to. And so Paul is saying, my security rested not in what he did, or my security does not rest in what I do or what I do day to day, but my security, my righteousness is held secure in Jesus' righteousness. I, I am safe and I find approval and I'm okay with God, not because of my righteousness that is now nothing, but who Christ is and His righteousness. That's where His security lies. That's why we sing songs like a mighty fortress um, is our God. Uh, That's why we declare, like we do in Romans chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's not because of something we've done. That's not something because we've added to. That's something that Jesus has secured because of His life. And Paul says, I am no longer putting my faith in my righteousness. I'm putting my faith in Jesus' righteousness. Paul wants the Philippian church to know security, and he wants them to have confidence. He says, I don't want you to live in fear, nor do I want you to be puffed up in self-righteous pride. I want you to have confident security, not in yourself, but in your faith in the person of Jesus. I want you to pursue Him. I want you to get caught up in His orbit. That's why he says, I count it all loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. I want, I want you to set that as your trajectory, not trying to create a list of all the great things that you've done, but I want you to set your trajectory and pursue and abide in Jesus alone. That's where I want you to set your eyes, the author and perfecter of your faith. You're not the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus is. Set your eyes there. Paul says, that's who I want to know. That's who I want to pursue. And everything else I count as loss. I count it as garbage compared to gaining Christ and becoming one with Him. He goes on in verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised Him from the dead. I want to suffer with Him, sharing in His death. So that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Now listen, this is what Paul is doing. This is how he keeps Jesus in the center of his life, pursuing Christ and not his own works. He says, I look, I look back and I find my security in what Jesus did on the cross. I look back and I understand that it's Jesus in his death that I find forgiveness and restoration. It is Jesus in, in his life of righteousness that I find my own righteousness. And then he says, and I want to suffer with him. And now Paul has moved from looking to the past. He's now looking to the present. Where was Paul? He was in prison. Paul is not saying, gosh, I just can't wait to suffer more. That's not what he's saying. Paul is finding himself in suffering in the moment. And he says, as I suffer, I want to suffer Christ, because I trust in the presence and security in Christ. I trust in the promise of Jesus, even in the midst of suffering, that on the other side of it is joy and hope and restoration. So he looks to the past, he says, 
I find security in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I find security in the moment in the midst of my suffering because of the promises of God. And then he looks to the future and he says, I long for the resurrection of the dead. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. The whole time Jesus is in view in every single moment. He says, would you join me in that kind of view? Would you live like that? Don't live in fear. Live like that. Rest in the righteousness of Christ. Just in closing thoughts, what does this mean for us? This truth, this significant warning. Christian, let me just mention a few things. First, Jesus isn't making up the difference in your life. He isn't making up the difference. In other words, Jesus isn't looking at your laundry list of good works, which really amounts to nothing, right? But here's my good works, Jesus. This is all I have. And Jesus says, well, I'll just take care of the rest. That's not what this means. Paul would say Jesus is the difference. He is your righteousness. You have nothing to offer him. He fills the whole ledger. Your ledger is empty. And even if it was full of anything, it would be trash. So Jesus isn't making up the difference. He is the difference. Secondly, you are not adding to what Jesus has already completed. The reason, there's a reason that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. You're not adding to that. You don't have to add to what Christ has already done. There, there is enough Christian religions in our world that will tell us, no, you have to add to what Christ has done. You've got to work it out on your own. Jesus kind of levels the playing field, and you've got to add from there. Listen, you aren't adding to what Jesus has already completed on the cross. Thirdly, your righteousness does not rise or fall based on your most recent sin. Somehow God loves me less because of what I did last night or the thoughts that I had. That's what, that's what Martin Luther was thinking. Your righteousness is not dependent upon your latest or most recent sin, but is dependent and rests on the, on the full righteousness of Jesus. That's why we have the freedom to enter the throne of grace with boldness. That's Hebrews chapter 4. We can go boldly because we have the righteousness of Jesus covering us. And we can go boldly and ask for forgiveness from God when we do sin the night before or that morning because Jesus has secured for us the opportunity to go before the Father without fear. Jude 24 says this. Listen to this. All glory to God who is able to keep you from following, falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. That's not because of work you've done. That's not because of the work that we've done. That's because of who Jesus is and the work that he's done. Church. Let us pedal in fear and pride. In our conversations with people about this life of faith, will you always point to Jesus as your righteousness? Always. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Paul's testimony, his, his security, 
It wasn't found in his own righteousness or his own work or his own ability to obey the law, but in your son Jesus. Lord, I recognize that there are likely people in this room, even Christians, that are racked with guilt. Because they believe that your approval is dependent upon what they did the night before or a behavior, an attitude in their life. And rather than running to you, they retreat from you. Father, I pray for that, that Christian today, that person today. Lord, I pray that, that they would know freedom and peace. To know that victory doesn't come from hiding from God in fear, but victory comes from running to God in confidence. That not only that he has forgiven our sin, but Lord, that he has given us the righteousness of his son. So that wherever we find ourselves on this side of eternity, whether we trip and fall, that we can run to him time and time again with confidence, knowing that we are righteous before Jesus and that we can find healing and hope to stand and walk again. Lord, I pray for the person in this room that their whole life they thought it was about me doing good enough stuff coming to worship, going to Bible study, being kind, all good things. Lord, may you help them see today that they have no righteousness of their own, but righteousness is found in Jesus alone, that he's the difference maker. Lead them to faith today in your son, Jesus. They love him, believe in him, and follow him. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.